You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. I am Dr. Felix Durr, and I'm a faculty at the Veterinary Teaching Hospital within the Department of Clinical Sciences at CSU. And I consider myself a clinician um, mostly, but also a researcher. So some people call that um, a clinician scientist. And I study a lot of mobility issues, particularly osteoarthritis in dogs. Well, I would love to tell a story about one of the favorite dogs that I have met so far in my life. And her name is Alice. And Alice is what we like to call a foster failure. So you probably, a lot of you have had a foster dog, or what we like to also call rescue dogs. And Alice was one of those. So we do a lot of work with um, foster groups and and Alice came to us because both my wife and I are veterinarians we usually tend to get the ones that have medical issues and Alice came to us with a long story but basically she's an or was an ancient golden retriever that was missing half of a leg and had all sorts of other problems and uh, I think what we always think is yeah we foster dogs and then we save them but truthfully I think um, those foster dogs impact people the same way that people impact them. And that was the case with Alice. Because what happened with Alice, I think that kind of goes back a little bit to my story of when I got hired at CSU and my education was in orthopedic surgery. And so that's what I initially got hired for to perform orthopedic surgeries, which I love. And it's fantastic when, you know, you can fix a fracture and a dog um uh, you know, that was unable to walk, then walks out of the hospital. But when I started, I was very interested in creating a new way to um, make prosthetics. And those are external prosthetics. So those are devices that attach to the limb and like a kind of a, a joint replacement just for prosthetics where you then can attach an external part to it. There's a lot of problems with that. I was trying to figure out how do you create a solution for that? That's a, a very difficult problem. And a lot of people are working on that. Uh, but then Alice really brought me around to thinking of things a little bit more simplistic. And basically what happened with Alice is she was you know, unable to really do anything. And then um, luckily, we had a study ongoing that looked at external prosthetics. So those are literally just things that are, um, they are custom made, so they are molded to the leg, but they are just attached with a few Velcro straps. And this prosthetic device is, you know, you know, a lot of people are a little skeptical of whether that works or not, but she was a trooper with it. She would chase balls and do all sorts of things. And I think she really inspired me to research things that are maybe a little less glamorous, but certainly no less important. If you've listened to this show for any amount of time, you know that one of the unique things about the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging is that we have a strong research program in comparative aging, which means that we are passionate about looking to our companion animals to learn more about human diseases and conditions. On today's episode, we're talking to Felix Dorr, an associate professor of orthopedic medicine and mobility at CSU's Veterinary Teaching Hospital. 
Dr. Doerr is interested in solving musculoskeletal problems that present in both dogs and humans to improve quality of life. In our conversation, we focus mostly on arthritis and the treatments and therapies that Dr. Doerr is researching to benefit both humans and dogs. We discuss why the placebo effect makes it easier to study disorders in dogs and what we can do to prevent rather than react to mobility issues. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Yes, we brought you on the the show to have a conversation about mobility from dogs to humans and that translational aspect of what it is that you study. And so you've already given given us a great introduction into kind of how you got into at CSU and, and the story about Ellis. So I wonder if you can tell us just a little bit more about your lab and what specifically you study. Yeah. Um, so I think about... Um... Uh, our lab. I like to say our lab because I'm really just a small part of it. And um, everybody from the students and the interns and our technicians, uh, that's really what makes everything happen. But um, it really is the clinic floor. So, uh, you know, there's so many ways to do research. What, What I love doing is what we consider clinical trials, and we can get into what that exactly means in a little bit. But basically what we do is we look at how can we help dogs that have naturally occurring disease? So most of the time that is something like what Ellis had, a missing limb or a problem that we can maybe address with an orthotic, a prosthetic, or most frequently really osteoarthritis. So um, osteoarthritis certainly is the number one reason for why dogs and people as well have mobility issues. And that's what we want to help with. We want to work on how do we treat this and then one of the maybe long-term goals of our lab is also how can we prevent that what can we do to be a little bit more proactive about making sure that we dogs or us don't get as much arthritis as we currently do right and i think a good baseline to talk about your research is what you've mentioned. Can you tell us what a clinical trial is, especially for vet veterinary clinical trials? Yes, I'd love to, um, because I think there's actually a lot of misconceptions. So uh, when we think about a clinical trial, so in general, it's, you know, people always think of it as a clinical research study. So it's something where a, um, a doctor decides they want to evaluate the effect of a certain treatment on a certain outcome measure. So this could be anything, but let's stick with the arthritis as an example here. So for us, that could be, can we use a pill that then increases the activity level in dogs with arthritis? The key part here is that they already have this disease. So what we're trying to do is to, on the one side, help that individual dog, and then on the other side, acquire data that may help other dogs and also other people. Because that is one of the things that uh, has been shown, you know, not too recently, but within the last 10 years, people have really caught on to this idea of that 
dogs and people and you know, horses and you know all sorts of other animals get arthritis and if we can study a drug in dogs that is not saying that this works in humans but it is a great first step to be like wow that is really promising and then maybe it's worthwhile considering bringing that to the human market or at least evaluating it there and there's one other thing that hopefully we get to talk about because it's one of my favorite topics is this placebo effect so we can hopefully dive into that at some point yeah, I think since we're we're on the topic of osteoarthritis, let's just get into that part of your research. What are some of the therapies that you've studied in terms of treating dogs for osteoarthritis? Yeah, we. Um, so I think that's one of the things. Clinical trials, uh, I should have said that, is something that people always think of the treatments being tested, being experimental. And that is not necessarily true in, 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 in our situation because we do test treatments that actually have been established already. So the point of this is that a lot of our clinical trials, really, there is no risk. So let me give you one example, and that is where we are comparing uh, hyaluronic acid, so that's the joint lubricant, and then to steroid injections. And what we want to know is which of these treatments is superior to the other. And along the same lines, then we have other studies that are investigating uh, platelet-rich plasma for osteoarthritis. We have also a clinical trial, and that probably fits into that experimental category a little bit better, uh, where we compare steroid injections to a new product that uh, just came on the market to see if that is better. We've also looked at stem cells, like everybody else has, and then uh, we have finished the study and are actually continuing another one with CBD. And then we also look at uh, nutraceuticals, so joint supplements. And then the last one is probably the prosthetics and orthotics study. That's where we look at a lot of different conditions, including ACL tears and Achilles tendon tears. And then we look for whether these can be improved with an orthotic. So that's an external device rather than a surgical procedure. So for listeners on this podcast, we have already very well established why our researchers are interested in studying dogs to learn more about what we can do for humans in terms of treatments. I mean, we know all of, you know, dogs live in the same environment as their human. So they're probably living the same lifestyle as their owner, and they're probably eating similar ways like their humans do. Um, and, and so we, we've, established that on the show in the past, but I'm wondering specifically, you know, for the mobility issues that you study, osteoarthritis, what specifically can you take from dogs that apply to humans from the work that you've done? Yeah, I think maybe not so much from the work that I've done so far, because it does actually take quite a long time to get to that point. That's a you know, a long-term goal because clinical trials and people take forever. But I think in general speaking, um, there is a lot of information that has been shown to be true in dogs and in people. And that is the, you know, information regarding certain um, joint supplements. And then one that specifically comes to mind 
I think, is the information on exercise and um, obesity on joints. And that is one of the things that has been studied in veterinary medicine and has this, these incredible numbers that people hopefully are aware of, but if not, I'm going to just repeat them. So the, one of the biggest things to do to prevent arthritis in dogs is to make sure that they are not overweight. So in the study that was done, they basically, they had two groups of dogs. They were from the same litter and were housed the same way. And one of them got to eat as much as they wanted. And the other one got three quarters of that. And basically the dogs that got to eat only three quarters and were of a more appropriate weight lived two years longer. So it's not just arthritis, it's all sorts of other conditions and had way less arthritis. So it's one of those things that we know has a huge impact and it actually is very easy to address, but yet there is a large number of dogs that are overweight and cats as well. So that's probably the one that is very applicable to both um, people and, and dogs. What about the exercise component? I was reading through your website and you have that very handy webpage about osteoarthritis and in, in dogs. And one of the other treatments is just like a regular exercise regimen. Yeah, 100%. So I think exercise is one of the things that has been shown to reduce pain. And then you also think of it as a physical therapy that you're basically doing by walking, keeping your joints in motion, activating your muscles is really the best thing you can do for arthritis. And that is counterintuitive because people say, well, you know, my leg hurts. I don't want to go for a walk. But at in modesty, it actually helps. And so that's the key for dogs as well. So we do know that dogs with arthritis, um, when they're overweight, and then we start them on an exercise program. So for example, we can do that in the underwater treadmill to get make it a little bit easier on the joints, but then slowly get them started, um, then they make huge leaps in their degree of activity that they have. And so that is something that I think people can learn from dogs is, you know, okay, don't force yourself if you haven't exercised to do a marathon tomorrow. Start with a five-minute walk. And that's one of the things that um, you know, we tried to look into a little bit with one of our studies, um, that I think we're going to talk about later. Yeah. So let's get, let's get back into some of those studies. So one of them, you know, that I'm interested is your work on CBD. What do you have for CBD? Because we know that's the hot topic and we have so many researchers at CSU interested in what cannabis can do for a variety of reasons. So what have you studied specifically? Yeah, so we have looked at uh, CBD for arthritis. So with the CBD study, we basically did exactly what we talked about. We looked at dogs that have naturally occurring osteoarthritis in at least one joint and that had clinical symptoms associated with it. Then we said, hey, let's add to the current uh, regimen that your dog is on, let's add CBD. And then what we did is we did what's called a crossover design. So that means they would basically go and get CBD during one phase, and then they would have a washout, so there's no treatment, and then they would get the placebo, or they would get placebo first and then CBD. The owners 
didn't know and none of the investigators knew which one was which one. And so that's a good way of trying to get rid of some of the uh, bias. And so then what we basically looked at, were they different? There are two groups, so CBD versus placebo. And it was only a small study. There were some encouraging um, point data points that was, were suggesting that the CBD helped, but it wasn't to the level where we could make firm conclusions. One other thing that we found was that certainly a lot of dogs had elevations in their liver enzymes, and we didn't really see any side effects from that. But there is some question about, hey, what does that mean? Is that a problem? You know, particularly when you give it long term, when you give it together with other pain medications. So I think there, unfortunately, our study kind of <laughs> opened up a whole another can of worms as far as more questions. And that's part of why we're doing another follow-up study. But overall, I think there is um, some great potential. I think we just need to learn a little bit more about this. That's awesome. You mentioned the crossover design and you talk about placebo effect in there. And I know something you're, you're eager to talk about is something with this caregiver placebo effect. So please explain what that is. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yes. Yeah, I think there are a few what we call landmark studies in veterinary medicine. One we already talked about, that's the one that showed us that we really got to be good about keeping our dogs skinny. The other one is something um, where they basically looked at when you tell owners that you are um, evaluating a drug, and you tell them that one of those treatments is the drug and the other one is the placebo, how many owners will basically have the false impression of that their dog improved when they're actually not getting any treatment? And that number is an astonishing high number. Over 50% of people did think that their dog improved, even though their dog didn't improve. So how did they do this? Well, basically, there is different ways in our clinical trials we do the same uh, thing. We look at objective data. So that is, for example, them walking over a pressure mat where we then calculate how much forces are they putting on the leg that has arthritis so is sore. And then we also have activity collars that measure how active are they? So with arthritis, they're they're less active because it you know hurts to move around. And then we also have owner questionnaires, and they're they're validated questionnaires. So they've been designed. It takes a long time to figure out exactly what you have to ask, but basically we know that these questionnaires work. And and so this is what was used. So basically to judge what the owner is thinking, the questionnaires were used, and to judge what's really happening the objective gait analysis was used. And that is really, to me, it's a really a key paper because not only is it important for researchers, but it's also important when we think about everyday practice. So when you go and take your dog to a veterinarian, they will have some recommendations for what what should you do for arthritis. So let's pick a joint supplement. They recommend the joint supplement X. And what you have to realize is that by recommending that, knowing that more than 50% of people, when they know that they may get a placebo, 
actually think their dog improves, it's probably much higher. So let's just say 70% of people will actually think that their dog is improving with whatever their veterinarian is prescribing, despite the fact that it may do absolutely nothing. And so that's why I think this is so important because we certainly, we need to figure out what, what is the best treatment because there's also some treatments can do harm, right? And there's no point in administering them if they have no effect. And then also from a standpoint of, you know, the cost, right? There's there's a cost with all these treatments and we want to find out what is the most most cost-effective to keep the dogs happy. The placebo effect in people is, I mean, that's why I love this topic. It's so fascinating. I'm going to, you know, maybe I'm going to just quickly tell a couple of things on that because it it is so fascinating <laughs> to me. So basically the difference between caregiver placebo and placebo effect is that caregiver placebo is our impression of our dog, for example. Placebo effect is our impression of ourselves, right? And so placebo effect actually can be a good thing versus caregiver placebo effect is probably not such a good thing, right? It may be good if you think that your dog is better, you take your dog for a walk and all that. But overall, I mean, you don't have the same effect of that people have. So talking about people, when you think about um, what it can do to people, there's a study that I love. It was done by a surgeon that said, hey, I'm not so sure if it actually helps when you do arthroscopic surgery for knee osteoarthritis. And so what they did is they set up a, a, a three-arm trial. So they had three different options. One of them was arthroscopic surgery. So you go in, debride the joint. And then the other one was just injecting saline. And then the other one was actually not doing anything besides creating the skin incision so that people would think they had surgery. And then everybody got the same spiel. They got told that they had surgery. They watched a video and all sorts of things. And there was no difference between groups, right? That is the mind-boggling thing. And this is why this is so important because, you know, why would you undergo a procedure that comes with risk if there is no benefit? Well, the answer is, well, because of the placebo effect. But then the point of this is that placebo effect can be accomplished with something that's maybe a little less invasive. I mean, in general, the more invasive, the bigger the pill or the more you pay for something, right? The bigger the placebo effect, which is also one of the things that we see with stem cell treatments, right? If you if you love your dog, then you're going to go spend $5,000 on stem cell therapy because right now everybody's saying that's the greatest thing in the world, right? It's like, you know, if you, you know, if you look at those wine tastings of, you know, somebody tells you you're drinking a $1,000 bottle of wine, you're like, oh my God, this is so amazing. At the same wine for $10, you'd be like, yeah, that's average, right? So same thing. And this is where we really have to um, acknowledge that the studies that we can do in dogs, because they don't have a placebo effect, they don't know that they're coming into the clinic because they have arthritis or walking over that mat because we're studying them. You will never eliminate that in people, right? We will always know that we're in a study. Yes, yes. Another valuable tool as to why we study dogs. We haven't talked about that that part when we talk about why we study dogs for things, you know, aging with humans. The placebo effect is a, a real, real one. It is. And, you know, there is one, uh, you know, I unfortunate part about this, too, and that is the only the only mistake that dogs have is really that they don't live long enough. 
but that also comes with this uh, advantage for these studies. If you want to study, for example, hey, is it helpful if you start taking joint supplements when you're 15? Does that reduce the amount of arthritis by age 75? You know, that's 60 years. And that same study can be done in dogs in a tenth of the time. And that's another real uh, valuable aspect of, of doing this translational research. Exactly. Yes. So I'm curious about the preventative side of the research that you do. I know that you're personally very interested in using using a dog in order to make the human more do more exercise. Like you like that idea of getting a dog so that you as an owner will have more exercise in your life. So I wonder I wonder just what is what is your work that you've done on the preventative side versus some more of the reactive medicine studies that that sometimes happen? Yeah, I think the the preventative side, I'd I'd love to uh, do more for the dog specifically. And, you know, like we talked about, it takes a while to set that up and it's quite costly. Like those studies, um, there's the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study, and that is a huge undertaking. So I can't wait to see some of those results, but we definitely need to do more of of that work. It's it's just it it takes a lot more planning and a lot more um, money to get those going rather than compared to a a study that is looking at, hey, let's treat this, like you say, the reactive treatment. But one thing that we um, started working on was uh, dogs and people exercising together. And our first um, study there was something where we said, hey, let's see what impact a walking exercise prescription has on the combination of dogs and their owners. So basically what's known is that the Surgeon General recommendation for 30 minutes of walking is beneficial to people. But then the problem is that people don't really do that. Like if you enroll them in a walking program, they do it for eight weeks or something like that, and then they don't do it anymore. And that's really where the dogs come in, right? They sometimes force you to walk, right? When you're, you've you trained your dogs to walk with you, then when it's raining or whatever, they don't care. They're going to be sitting there with the leash in their mouth and be like, hey, time to go for a walk. And so then the other part of this is actually that people are more likely to do something for somebody else than for themselves. So, you know, if you ask people can you give up smoking because it's bad for you? I'll be like, yeah. But if you say, will you do that because secondhand smoke for your kids or for your dog is actually a real problem, then they'll be like, of course I will. And that's the same with this where uh, we basically said, hey, let's um, focus on the health impact on your dog. This is great for your dog to um, walk and then um, see whether that has any benefit. And what we did is we studied this for eight weeks only, and we're working on a, on a longer follow-up study on this as well. And the dogs had activity collars, and then we measured exactly how active they were. And then we also did health measurements in the people. And long story short, the health measurements improved for uh, both groups. And that is, you know, a really cool finding. And it's like preliminary data and it was, you know, not not uh, a large enough study. But overall, you know, people would walk more and um, then there there is all these secondary health benefits. And that's not even looking at, you know, mental well-being and all of those things, because that's also, we, we know when you get outside and 
you know, you, you exercise that, that has all these other secondary health impacts. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a great way to prevent not just osteoarthritis in, in both dogs and people. So if you, if you had to summarize or give us like a takeaway of the translational component of this work, you know, what can we take from dogs and apply to people or, you know, when it comes to osteoarthritis, what would you say? Like what, what is happening today in the veterinary space that we can maybe one day apply to humans? I mean, I think we can already apply a lot of the things that we, we talked about. I think exercising you and your dog, great idea. Eating healthy is one that we haven't talked about yet. Um, is a great one. Yeah, so I think one of the amazing things about being at CSU is that there are so many different groups. And what we uh, have discussed with a, a, a rather large group of researchers at CSU is some of the novel treatments that could potentially be reducing some of the inflammation um, in our bodies. And so that is one thing where going back to this, well, dogs unfortunately don't live as long. That is one of the things that I think we will probably see in the future is where we will see more studies on some of these benign treatments that people take already, antioxidants and so on, and actually studying that and seeing whether that actually makes a difference particularly when you look at things like high impact activities. So if you think about people doing like marathon running and that type of thing, it always creates a little bit of insult to your joints and, and body in general. And if there are things that you could be doing to reduce the long-term impacts of that, that would be great. And that's where dogs are a fantastic model because even the dogs that are just, um, you know, running out in the backyard and chasing a squirrel, that is going from zero to 180 in, you know, 0.1 seconds. And that's quite a lot of uh, stress on your joints. So I think we will probably see more of that. And hopefully you'll see some of this coming out of CSU down the road. One thing I would like to mention maybe is because this is very much so the same in people and in dogs is that there is a gazillion products out there that you can buy online that tell you this is the cure for arthritis or for whatever other treatment. I do think that being a little bit skeptical when something is um, you know, advertised as curing arthritis is indicated. Because if there was something that would cure arthritis besides a joint replacement, that person, you know, would be quite famous. And so there is, you know, a lot of this is not backed up by science, but has a lot of marketing. And one of the things that I always, when I, when I think about this is it's a real dilemma because we talked about the placebo effect and the placebo effect is also something that veterinarians uh, fall, you know, to because, when we get all this marketing, we want to prescribe something that helps dogs. And we want to believe that this helps dogs. But then um, when we don't have any evidence to back it up, then it makes it a little bit um, difficult 
for the owners to then, or for us to justify that cost to the owners. And that's the same for people. So I guess my point is when, whenever you take something or whenever you buy something for your dog, a little bit of a search on there's so many sources out there, what's the evidence to uh, behind this? And then what is the harm? Uh, particularly if you're thinking about a surgery or something like that, that comes with a lot more risk than just giving a pill that might not be doing anything. But there are pills that have side effects. So I think just follow the signs a little bit, and that's probably helpful for both people and dogs. Yes, and remember that nutraceuticals are not usually regulated by the FDA. (laughs) Yes, very good point, that there's a lot of products out there that don't undergo that scrutiny. Yes. Yes. So the question that I ask everyone that comes on the show is this last question here, which is what is your best advice for healthy aging from your perspective and what you research? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think we kind of already talked about this, but um, about uh, my advice would be to, you know, to make this a little bit more specific rather than just say, go get a dog, (laughs) which is maybe go to the Humane Society, pick out uh, one of those muds because they actually have less orthopedic disease and they're great dogs. And then go to whichever pet store you want to go to and buy a leash (laughs) and then train your dog to bring that leash to you whenever he or she wants to go for a walk. I, I think it's the 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 best thing you can do because it will impact you in so many ways. Like I said, the joy of being with a dog and then the uh, forced to exercise, to being active. And, you know, you get to meet people, you get to relax, you get to see them smile. So that would be my advice. Felix, have you trained your own dogs to bring you for them to bring you their leashes? <laughs> oh yes. yes. Oh, you really have. Okay. Oh yes. They they in fact recently they started uh, jumping on the bed <laughs> when we're not up by five a.m. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. That's great. so you're you're actually walking the talk. You're not just telling other people to do it. You have also done it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, our dogs. They definitely. They twice a day. They remind us of that it's time to go for a walk for sure. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, Felix, thank you for this last 45 minutes. I think this was a really good conversation. (laughs) Well, this was fun. Thank you for having me on it. And then I hope it works out. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.